0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark.
1: Thanks, Dewey. Today I'm talking with Mike Horton, J. Gresson-Machin, Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California, where he has taught since 1998. He's co-host of the White Horse Inn broadcast and editor-in-chief of Modern Reformation magazine. He's the author of many books, including Putting Amazing Back into Grace, Christless Christianity, The Gospel-Driven Life, People and Place, and the volume we're discussing today, The Christian Faith, A Systematic Theology for Pilgrims on the Way. These titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Mike, and welcome back to Office
2: Hours. Thanks, Scott. Great to be with you again.
1: Well, you have written a new systematic theology, and the very name of the thing might give people hesitation. What is a systematic theology? Yeah, it's,
2: it sort of sounds uh, off-putting to people, sort of like uh, introduction to electrical engineering. <laughs> <laughs> it's really uh, systematic theology is just an overview of the basic doctrines that we hold as Christians – Gerhardus Voss, one of our great models in the past, said biblical theology works in a line and uh, systematic theology works in a circle. And what he meant by that was biblical theology looks at the historical organic development of a theme from Genesis to Revelation. For instance, you look at the, the development of the doctrine of the church from its roots all the way back in the Garden of Eden to Seth and his line as, as people began calling on the name of the Lord, all, all the way to Revelation where you finally have uh, the heavenly scene of, of uh, people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, people, and nation worshiping God. That's a biblical theological progression. And so they're looking at the historical line from promise to fulfillment. Systematic theology stands on this side of the fulfillment and says, okay, but then how does, let's say, the doctrine of the Trinity – Relate to the doctrine of the incarnation, and how how does the doctrine of the incarnation or our doctrine of Christ relate to uh, our view of eschatology, the end times, so forth? So I like to think of it in terms of a uh, topographical map in biblical theology, where you see the peaks and the valleys and and the different topography of the of the countryside, and then you have a street map that shows you the intersections between uh, roads and avenues and boulevards. So systematic theology is simply an attempt to understand God's revelation as a coherent pattern. I remember reading
1: Burkhoff's system, or at least looking at Burkhoff's system when I was a college student, and I hadn't looked at a lot of systematic theology. I had begun reading Calvin's Institutes, but I hadn't read any modern systematics, and it struck me when I was looking at it as clear, but it also struck me as something like a medical textbook, mm-hmm. and it was hard work to read it. Why should someone invest as much time as you have invested in this text and why should a reader invest the work that it will take to read this text or or maybe this one isn't quite like burkhoff's in that yeah, respect yeah it's a
2: little bit different as you know burkhoff in many ways was harvesting the insights of Herman bovink and basically you have a cliff's note notes version of of hermann bovink's dogmatics with a little hodge thrown in with a little hodge thrown in and Berkhoff was just the guy to do that because he knew bovink so well, and we needed that. We desperately needed that. One of the great things, and I think it's one of the reasons it has such staying power uh, after all these years, it was written in the 1950s, is that Berkhoff summarizes the basic biblical doctrines and their logical connections in a very brief way. And so you can turn to it and remind yourself of what that debate was about, about what that heresy involved about the connection between this doctrine and that doctrine. It's really great for ready reference. The problem is you can't, I think, in that kind of a summary approach, really go into any depth uh, into biblical theology, tracing the development of a theme across the scriptures now, granted, they do different things. You need biblical theologians and you need systematic theologians.
1: And you need them to work together. Right? You need them
2: to work together. But I think a lot of people pick up Burkhoff's systematic theology and they say, if this is systematic theology, it's kind of dry. It's It's just logical connections. Well, that's kind of what systematic theology does. It's hmm. not dry, but it assumes that there are other people who have these organic developments of how this doctrine developed over biblical history. So what I'm trying to do, I guess, is something in between bovink and Bob hmm. Bovink is just so massive, uh, goes into so much detail on so many different points, and you could spend a year just sitting there and squatting on that property, f- enjoying the vista.
1: I was going to say that would be a, a year well spent. I mean, A you, year well spent. You're talking about four volumes of uh, – very highly developed, carefully written, well-written, systematic theology that really comes to us at the turn of the 20th century. And so here we are now, just past the turn of the 21st century, and what you're offering is a a substantial one volume, right? Not not four volumes.
2: Yes. Yeah, this is one volume. It's not dogmatics. Dogmatics is more uh, you have the freedom to to deep sea dive into topics mm. that you find interesting excursies excursies with systematic theology you're you 're not really trying to add anything all that new you 're trying to summarize the faith once and for all delivered to the saints mm. and you 're not going into to the kind of depth that you might want to on your particular hobby horses your your areas of interest you're you 're trying to summarize you 're trying to put the emphasis where you think the Bible puts the emphasis. Uh, So you're limited by the genre. Yeah, yeah. It's a a different kind of a book. But it's helpful for people to be able to think through the logical connections between this doctrine and that doctrine and how those doctrines were forged. So I spent a lot of time not only on the biblical theological roots of the doctrine, but also the historical theological development, how the church uh, came to, you know, often... Forged through heresy, came to understand more clearly what uh, it believed and why.
1: Some people, uh, a few writers in the modern period, have proposed simply doing away. With systematic theology. Uh, Some have proposed just replacing it with biblical theology and uh, have suggested that the whole thing, the whole enterprise of doing what you've just described is a mistake. Mm -hmm. Why is it so necessary? You've talked about the difference between a street map and a topographical map, you know, contours versus details. But can you defend the the very necessity of this kind of teaching?
2: Sure. A lot of times, especially the, the trend that you're talking about is provoked by the impression that systematic theology is an attempt to put God in a box. We hear these phrases all the time. It's an attempt to scale God down to our reason, and uh, it's an attempt to put logic in the place of a relationship with a person. You hear all of that, but as soon as you ask a person, well, who is the person you're talking about? Say, well, God. God... In the, in the person of Jesus Christ. Who's God? And, and who's this Jesus Christ that you have a personal relationship with? The minute that they start answering those questions, they are harvesting the fruit, the labors, mm-hmm. of a lot of Christians who've gone before them.
1: So you really can't avoid doing some kind of systematic theology. You can
2: do it badly, or you can do it well, or you can do it somewhere in between, but you can't avoid doing systematic. The first time, you answer the question, who is Jesus? Who, who are human beings? Who is God? You're doing theology. Theology is the study of God.
1: And anytime you relate it to something else, then it becomes
2: systematic. Exactly. Every, every discipline, it, to be a legitimate science, you have to be able to relate the facts in that discipline to each other. You mm. have to be able to relate, if you're a physicist, you have to be able to relate the laws of physics to the concrete uh, specific empirical interactions that you see between objects in the world. It's the same in theology. You are looking at God's revelation and trying to see how it all fits together. Now, if, if you say that in principle you can't do this because the Bible has so much diversity in it, people have said quite rightly the Bible's not a book but a library, it's not written as a systematic theology, In principle, you can't summarize the Bible's teaching as a coherent whole. What you're saying is the Bible is inherently self-contradictory, and you're in in effect denying that the Bible is a canon. Hmm. A canon means a rule, that it actually holds together. It delivers to us authoritatively the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. If we can't do that then we can't really pass the faith on to our children.
1: Are there any biblical models of anything like a systematic account of the faith of Scripture?
2: Uh, In Scripture itself? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You look at the way Paul, for instance, insists upon ministers who come after him uh, following closely the pattern of sound words. Hmm. That's not a casual phrase, the pattern of sound words. It's not just that there are sound doctrines. There's a sound way of saying them. Hmm. So, for example, uh, you know you have pieces of creeds in some of Paul's letters, and he is assuming these as uh, his audience uh, he assumes that his audience was very familiar with these these creedal formula, and they came before him, so they must have been very early. He also sometimes introduces these little fragments by saying, uh, this is a trustworthy saying and worthy of all acceptation. Hmm. So it's not just my faith, it's the faith. Hmm. I participate in the the believing community throughout the ages, believing in Jesus Christ. Now, the church can't believe for me. I have to step into that river myself personally, but I'm stepping into a river of a, a cloud of witnesses who have gone before me if you say you believe in the Trinity, uh, I want to say, do you have any idea how much systematic and historical theology you're saying you believe in the Trinity depends on? Go into your concordance and look look for Trinity, T. Look look for Trinity. <laughs> it's not anywhere in your concordance. Yeah. Well, is it an important doctrine? Of course, it's a very important doctrine. How did it come to be an important doctrine if you can't find the T word? in your concordance, in your Bible, if the word trinity is never mentioned.
1: i have got a couple more questions. One in particular involves the history of systematic theology. We'll get to that right after this.
0: In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, Jay Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California. Where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu 888 480 8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Are you the
1: first person ever to write a systematic theology?
2: <laughs> uh. Actually, uh, maybe the first one to write a systematic theology of so many pages with so little to say. No, I'm just working off of a sheet of music here that is very old. As you well know, it goes back to the early church fathers. One of the first works was uh, Origins. De Principis, which was not altogether helpful in the history of the church, shows you 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 could have uh, systematic theologies that have a lot of impact, but it's not always positive. But it was very early. It was an attempt to explain the Christian faith within the context of a highly educated Platonic culture, a culture that was very much indebted to Plato. And unfortunately, Origen kind of uh, in trying to bring people into the Christian faith from that environment, kind of fell into the Platonism himself. Irenaeus's Against Heresies was another very great early formative volume. Not really a systematic theology, but had a lot of the ingredients of one. One of the great systematic theologies of the East was John of the John of Damascus's uh, work, The Orthodox Faith, published in the eighth century. And then uh, in the West, you had Peter Lombard's Sentences, which during the Middle Ages was the common textbook, theological textbook of the schools, and Thomas Aquinas sort of in some ways replaced that. Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica was a really hard set of systematic and philosophical theology to work through, so Lombard was still in there, but Aquinas kind of rewrote, in some ways rewrote the rules of systematic theology and what the discipline is. You come to the Protestant scholastics after the Reformation. The Reformers didn't ever write a systematic theology. They were Reformers. Uh, Calvin's Institutes is not a systematic theology. It is it is basically a manual of instruction for pastors who are about to go be burned at the stake in France. Uh, they're going to come there. They're going to uh, learn the basics of the Christian faith. Then they're going to go back and preach and teach and plant churches and many of them. Will be martyred. So it was in the context, not of ivory tower speculation, but of reforming the church in a very uh, violent period that uh, the reformers were doing their work. The next generation came along behind them and sort of cleaned things up a bit. Calvin and Melanchthon came behind Luther. Uh, Luther often said uh, that I chop down the trees and uh, Melanchthon stacks the wood, and that was his way of saying. (laughs) I'm kind of a, a bombast. I, I come in and I make a mess, and Melanchthon cleans it up and tidies things up. That's exactly the the role that, that Melanchthon had in relation to Luther. Beza and others had that relationship to Calvin, although Calvin wasn't quite as messy. He, yeah. he was pretty uh, precise uh, himself as he went along. But in every revolution in science, in politics, in any field you can think of, you have a, a period of revolution – followed by a period of refinement and development. Copernicus's theories would have gone nowhere if you didn't have people coming afterward cleaning up the mess that he had made. He, he, there are lots of things he didn't get right. Hmm. There are lots of things that he pointed to, but being a, a finite human being, wasn't able to test himself, and he didn't necessarily come up with the best explanation. But the paradigm was right. And that's what you find, I would argue, and I know you would too, that's what you find in the great uh, systems of the 16th and 17th centuries in the Reformed tradition. You have people coming along behind the Reformers, consolidating things, and they often knew the church fathers and the medieval theologians Mm. better than the Reformers themselves.
1: Yeah, they'd had more time uh, to look at these things, and they were in a different context and setting, right, than the Reformers The Reformers didn't write their theology in a university, but many of the Orthodox writers of the late 16th century and through the 17th century did so as pastors, yes, but also as scholars in the university interacting with other scholars from other traditions. And so they had opportunities and they had responsibilities uh, intellectually in the 17th century that didn't really exist in the sixteenth century. That's
2: right. Yeah, they could harvest some of the insights of the of the reformers and develop them further in part because they had a they had a job.
1: And the world the, was changing the too.
2: Let them work. Well that's right.
1: You no, know, <laughs> they had a job and, and nobody was necessarily trying to kill them. And the the world around them in the seventeenth century, really from the middle of the seventeenth century, from the death of Descartes, the world begins to change pretty profoundly and Christians had to articulate the faith in intelligent, thoughtful, and even sophisticated ways In an era where Europe, for example, uh, in particular, began to become increasingly skeptical about Christian truth claims. And and here we are now all these hundreds of years later. And the problem of skepticism isn't any easier now than it was at the end of the 17th century. Is it uh, the case that, too, we have to restate the faith in every generation? And if so, why is that?
2: Yeah, we do because we are... I don't know who said it, but we're always one generation away from apostasy. Mm. And that's simply because the covenant of grace is something that is passed down by covenant succession. Uh, That doesn't mean that people just inherit their faith and they don't believe personally. What it means is they inherit the faith that they will come to believe and embrace for themselves personally, making their own profession of faith. But they have to be given a grammar. Everyone is born speaking a certain language. There is no such thing as language. There's only English and Mandarin and French. There there isn't any such thing called language. And there's no such thing called religion. Hmm. There are particular beliefs, narratives, laws, prophecies and expectations for the future that Each religion and each culture, each worldview propounds, and everyone is born into that, and we don't realize the extent to which we are not born into a quote-unquote Judeo-Christian culture, but a very pagan culture that is every bit as corrosive on our faith and practice as a Hindu culture or a Buddhist culture or a Muslim culture. We have to always be, as it were, snatching our faith from the fires, the mm. flames of uh, this present evil age.
1: I mean, which is more dangerous to Christian faith, a seductive materialism uh, at the mall or in some uh, congregations, you know, a nationwide celebration of Denali? I yeah,
2: mean, really, they're just in some ways, different names.
1: Exactly. So now... Uh, as you're wrestling with how to teach the entire Christian faith from the beginning to the end, you're giving Christians a vocabulary and helping them to describe the faith and the world and, and how those two things intersect. How did that affect you? How did that change you as you're sitting down maybe for the first time in a sense, to give a complete comprehensive account to other Christians. What what effect did that have on you?
2: Well, first of all, it reminded me that I couldn't produce a comprehensive account, that I could only summarize what I really believed any Christian in any age would regard as the most important doctrines. And even there, every doctrine that I summarize uh, there is a partial summary. So it's partial from the top down. There's nothing really exhaustive or comprehensive, and you know none of our none of our theologians said that it's encyclopedic. They acknowledged that's why they called, as you know, they called our systems the theology for pilgrims on the way. Hmm. Uh, it is our theology, not God's theology.
1: Yeah, explain that because that embedded in your title is a really, really important theological truth that the Reformed churches confess, that uh, confessional Lutheran churches confess. We may understand that distinction a little differently, but we both confess it. Uh, Talk about what that distinction is because everyone might not be familiar with it.
2: Sure. Is it that God is not just? quantitatively different from us, but qualitatively different. Which and, would
1: seem sort of obvious, yeah. right? In the beginning, God. Yeah. And if you look around, there's just God and no one else. Yeah, but,
2: strictly speaking, God doesn't exist.
1: And so you want to qualify
2: that please, <laughs> before we have to close the seminary? Exactly. God is existence. God is life. We exist. We have life from him. We exist. Existence is a dependent predicate. To exist means that you don't have life in yourself. Uh, you don't transcend the category of creature. But mm. God does. There's not a, a sort of genus called God, and then this particular God that we believe in starts existing.
1: Yeah. The God of the Bible, whom we confess, is not a subset of some broader category of things called God. Yeah. And when you say uh, God does not exist, you're not saying that he isn't. Um, You're simply saying that there never was when he was not.
2: And and that it's qualitatively different to say that God is and Scott and Mike are.
1: Because we're creatures. We're finite. There was when we were not. And we don't necessarily exist. But God exists necessarily. He cannot not exist. Exactly. Yeah. God has to be. And he is. And he was. And he shall be. And he shall be what he shall be.
2: Yeah. And it's. It, all of this just highlights the fact that it's not just that God is bigger than I am, yeah, he's not more of you He's not more of me, he's not just you know a, a really 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 tall guy he, and
1: he's not an extension of your own experience, he's not uh, a projection that you've imagined and projected onto the vast nothingness
2: that's right. he is qualitatively different now, if he is qualitatively different in his being from me, then uh he is qualitatively different in his knowledge he knows. Everything exhaustively, and that doesn't mean that he knows it more. He knows it in a qualitatively different way because he is God and I'm not. However, because in him we live and move and have our being, we are analogies of God, and therefore our knowledge is analogical of God's knowledge. It's not exactly the same as God's on any point, but it is not arbitrary. When Mm -hmm. God gives us a revelation of himself, those attributes that he gives us uh, are not just pulled out of thin air. They really are attributes that in here, in God's own person. That he is. That he is. And nevertheless, those are always analogies. We don't have any direct access to God's inner being. So because of that difference between creator and creature, both at the level of being and at the level of knowing, we as finite creatures have t- truth with a little t. Mm. God has truth with a capital T. God has, strictly speaking, only God has absolute truth. But because there is absolute truth somewhere in God, and God reveals his truth to us, there can be finite, accommodated truth that we can understand. So everything, our existence and our knowledge, are always dependent on God's.
1: So God has made himself known, if I can summarize. He is, and he's made himself known, and he's made himself known truly, and he's made himself known in a way that we can understand. Because if he made himself known as he is in himself, what would happen? We'd be toast. We would be toast. And there's indication of that in Scripture, right? Sure.
2: Moses asked to see God face to face, and... And God said, no man can see my face and live. I'll hide you behind this rock and let my rear end
1: pass by. As it were. As it were. hindmost most quarters. hindmost
2: most right? quarters. But I'm not going to let you see my face. You know, the face is the most intimate part. Mm. Nobody, frankly, wants to see your the backward hind- parts. Hi- hindmost most quarters, yes. <laughs> uh, it's the most humble part of you. People want to see your face. That's how we feel like we have a relationship with each other because we see each other's face. And he says, now that we're really buddies, <laughs> can I see your face? Yeah. And God says, look, I love you too much for you to see my face. No man can see my face and live. But I will, I will let my backward parts pass by. And the way that this comes to pass is God preaches a sermon. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion mm. on whom I will have compassion so in other words, when God condescends to let us have a peek at him, it's not a peek at God in his majesty and his glory and his unclothed, uh, blinding incomprehensibility. But rather in his humility, in his descent to us, in his charity toward us, in his humility. And that's why we speak of the humiliation of the son in his incarnation. Yeah. God and- Became flesh.
1: And the Son who was humiliated for us is the self disclosure of God. In the beginning was the Word, Mm -hmm. the self disclosure, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that self disclosure became flesh and dwelt among us. So even
2: when the apostles say, We beheld His glory, glory. uh, we, we beheld His glory. In the face of Jesus Christ, we didn't behold his glory in naked majesty.
1: Yeah. Jesus said, when I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And that lifting up begins on the cross before it begins in the ascension.
2: So we don't go around Jesus to get to God and find out what God is really like in himself. Yeah. Which Look, is Jesus he's our only mediator
1: unadvisable exactly yeah. and and the book of Hebrews makes that very clear among other places that uh, he is our high priest he's our our mediator well, one last question so Someone calls the bookstore or logs online to wscal. edu/bookstore and orders this volume, "The Christian Faith: A Systematic Theology for Pilgrims on the Way." Comes in the mail and they unwrap it eagerly. How should they use it? Should they just sit down and start reading it? Or it makes
2: a perfect doorstop. <laughs> your door will not close easily or easily ever yeah. or ever. Uh, yeah, I mean, one way to do it is to simply to start reading at page one and read it clear through. I think a lot of people probably who buy it, though, are going to dip into it at certain points. It's going to be a reference work. Uh, I I anticipate or hope that it will be used in college and seminary courses where a particular topic is the focus and uh, sections of it will be assigned and read. But I really do hope that thoughtful lay people will sit down and read it and use it as a launching pad for their own Bible study and prayer and meditation. I don't see this at all as a dry, dusty enterprise. I think that it's only a launching pad to get people into the Scriptures and to think of the coherence of biblical teaching.
1: This is Office Hours, and we've been talking with Mike Horton, and about his new volume, The Christian Faith, a Systematic Theology for Pilgrims, on the way.
0: Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.